Good evening. My name is Jeff Cole, and I'm the director of Crossroads, which is Geneva's uh, Center for Enriched Learning. And it's the Center for Enriched Learning that sponsors the GVAL series, puts it together, and we're really happy that you're with us tonight. This is the final event of the 2015-2016 uh, GVAL series, which is G the Geneva Visiting Artists and Lecture Series series. Um, and, uh, be but before tonight's speaker is introduced, I do want to tell you what we have planned for next year. Lord willing, these things will happen. Um, on September 15th and 16th, we've invited Corwin Smith to talk about the presidential election. I think it'll just get more interesting as time goes on. Um, <laughs> I think he'll have plenty to talk about. Um, he's the director of the Paul B. Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin College, and he's written a number of books including Pews, Prayer and Participation, Religious and Civic Responsibility in America. So I invite you to come out to hear him. On November 10th and 11th, we've invited David Dark, uh, who's an academic and an author. And David has written uh, books such as The Sacredness of Questioning Everything and Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Re Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons, and other pop culture icons, and he's also contributed an essay to uh, a book, a collection called Michael Jacks Jackson, Grasping the Spectacle. Uh, so you might want to come out for that November 10th and 11th. And then on um, February 8th, we'll have the Voss Lecture, which we've not had in a couple years, or a few years, I should say, and we've invited D.A. Carson for that, and he's the pr uh, research professor of New Testament uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I won't go into his publications. He has about 50 of them. Uh, so I invite you to come out for that lecture. And then finally, on April 19th, we've invited Anthony Bradley, uh, who's a professor at the King's College in New York City and has appeared on uh, Fox News and other uh, news um, channels. Uh, he's written books such as Black and Tired, Liberating Black Theology, and Aliens in the Promised Land. So again, um, the details for this will be on our website uh, later this, this year, around uh, the end of July, early August. That's uh, geneva.edu slash crossroads. Um, so I, I would invite you to come out for those. At this time, I want to invite uh, our chaplain, Rut Etheridge, to come forward and introduce our guest this evening. Rut? It's commonplace and perfunctory to say that it's an honor to introduce uh, the one who will be speaking this evening, but it truly is. Um, and it's a particular honor for me because I can count Rosaria as a personal friend. And she is also, despite the fact that she may not be comfortable with this language, truly one of my heroes in the faith. Um, I have a few of those in my life, and they are people who live simply as if Jesus Christ is alive and as if his written word is, in fact, the word of the living God. And everything else beyond that is, is details, and, and sometimes very difficult details. And I'll let her tell her story, of course. But one of the things that she wrote in her newest book, uh, that was a, a goldmine of a blessing for me in, in one sentence. God's story is my ontology. So much bound up in that, identifying ourselves fully and completely with the risen Christ. And so, again, I don't want to take away anything that she'll be saying um, this evening. There are both of her books. Both of her books are available this evening, both Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert as well as Openness Unhindered. And they're at a book table just off to my right. 
And before Rosaria herself comes up to speak, um, the address this evening will actually begin with a video. So we'll watch that video and then Rosaria will come and address us. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, boy, <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you, like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally, you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six if you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like that's wrong to believe in it. Because I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. 
It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a 6'5 Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Anybody seen that? You've seen that, okay. All right, so how, just raise your hand, please, if you've seen it. How many people have seen it? Okay, I heard a little bit of laughter, um, a little bit odd, maybe. All right, it, I really think that this, this video captures quite perfectly the worldview division that we face today. Um, one that is played out in friendships and families, courts of law, and even public bathrooms. Today's worldview division cannot agree on either the important questions or the truthful answers. Here are the questions that divide us that I think are, are clear in this video. Number one, is there such a thing as knowable truth? And are people accountable to truth whether they uh, believe it or feel it or not? Number two, is your personal identity subject to any external objective truth or is it solely subjective? And number three, are feelings more important than facts? So we're gonna come back to those questions and we're gonna come back to the video when we have a chance to discuss this. But those are the things I really want you to think about. You know, a worldview begins with the question of why. Why is there something rather than nothing? Christians answer this why with the understanding that God created the universe out of nothing. And that, as the prophet Jeremiah says in the 18th chapter of the book named for him, God is the potter and we are the clay. The worldview division in which we find ourselves began with the rejection of God's authority at the level of culture. It did not begin with the sexual revolution in the 1960s. It did not begin with no-fault divorce or gay marriage or birth control or legal abortion, although all of these issues reflect something about it and move it in a particular direction. The worldview that rendered those college students that we saw up there simply unable to tell a relatively short white guy that he definitively was not, nor will he ever be a six foot five Asian woman began in the 19th century when feelings took preeminence over facts. The 19th century witnessed many additional changes to worldview that we still see today. Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalyst, redefined the Christian biblical notion of sin as simply this, cultural phobia. Charles Darwin, the naturalist and founder of evolution, called Christian morality a coping mechanism. And Karl Marx famously declared Christian faith the opiate of the masses. And the 19th century also witnessed language changes about what it means to be human. Prior to the 19th century, all people, regardless of their faith tradition, were universally understood to have a biological sex that mattered, male or female, 
and an eternal soul that reflected the image of God. But Freud's studies on human sexuality, combined with the rise of birth control, modernized what it meant to be human. The old ways seemed insensitive to these new findings. And by the 20th century, people were defined as sexual beings whose different objects of desire determined separate categories of identity. The shift from seeing people as, distinct, as distinctly male or female image bearers of a holy God with eternal purposes to sexual beings whose human flourishing depends on engaging in sexual activity of their own choosing has resulted in a world where sexual orientation is now seen as a true reflection of personhood, who you are ontologically or originally and by God's design. The potter and the clay have changed positions. In turn, the category of sexual orientation has invited other categories of personhood to claim autonomy from objective categories of truth. We see this grafted even into the language of public policy. We are seeing a rise of what is called SOGI laws, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation and gender identity. These laws are popping up everywhere, especially it seems in the bathroom. What is true for sexual orientation, says our culture, is likewise true for all identities of personhood that spring from a deeply held subjective personal experience, perception, or feeling. The man-made category of sexual orientation created a shift not only in what it means to be a human being, but also in what sexuality means. Self-representation and identity are now rooted in sexual orientation and not in the purposes that God has for his image bearers. In the words of Michel Foucault, the famous gay identifying French historian of ideas who tragically died of AIDS in 1980, for the first time in the history of ideas in the 19th century, quote, homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy into a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphroditism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now born as a new species. That's a quote, unquote. Let's unpack what, what uh, Foucault is saying here. Now, there have always been people who are sexually attracted to their own sex ever since the fall in the garden. That's, that's not what he's disputing. That's not news. Homosexual, homosexuality was certainly not created in the 19th century, and I am not suggesting that it was. But in the 19th century, homosexuality was now understood not merely as a sexual practice, but rather as a personal identity, one that encompassed sexual desire and sexual practice, but one was that, that was not merely limited to it. Now, last year, when five unelected Supreme Court justices um, appended sexual orientation to the 14th Amendment in the 2015 Obergefell decision that declared state bans on gay marriage unconstitutional, sexual orientation metastasized from a description of a personhood, all right, already a far stretch from the Bible's definition, to a civil right. The Obergefell decision established into law the idea that our sexuality is inseparable from our spirit, 
that it captures the essential truth about who we really are, and that to deny its expression violates the core of our identity. We are told that our sexual orientation is unchangeable, and that as long as we are expressing our sexuality among consenting people, then sexual expression is not only freely our own, but is also the source of justice and human flourishing. While the history of this idea has been moving in this direction since the 19th century, after the Supreme Court made sexual orientation analogous to race, the category of sexual orientation is now considered a divine, standalone, ontological, human truth. Your humanity is hereby and hereafter declared on the continuum of alphabet soup, L-G-B-T-Q, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And your identity is completely yours for the defining. No outside truth can be imposed upon you. You decide who you are. When sexual orientation became a civil rights category in 2015, another category of selfhood was coming of age, gender identity. In the slang of today, sexual orientation describes who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity describes who you want to go to bed as. The rise of gender identity has now given rise to other identities. There is a they in San Francisco, that would be an individual person who is using the plural per pronoun, who believes himself to be a dragon. There is a 54-year-old biological male in England who believes himself to be a six-year-old girl and has garnered a family to adopt him and raise him as such. And within the last year, sexual orientation has recently given rise to something called GSA, genetic sexual attraction. GSA is told to explain why some fathers are sexually attracted to their own daughters. And all of this is rooted in the idea that your personal identity is of your own making. Autonomy is king. If it feels good, it's got to be right. Now, the issue at stake here is the ontological, original, essential merit of a human being. Indeed, when a culture embraces a category of personhood that rejects God as author of our person and purpose, we lose grip, we lose our grip on any truthful understanding of who we are. Indeed, all lies are born when God's truth is seen as an act of discrimination. When we deny God as the author of our human purpose and meaning, we no longer have access in meaningful ways to categories like sin, grace, heaven, hell, repentance, faith, forgiveness, restoration. If we are fine just the way we are, we have no reason to believe that original sin has distorted us, actual sin has distracted us, and indwelling sin is manipulating us. If personal experience is self-evidently the truest truth and need not be framed by any outside reality check, then each person doing what is right in his own eyes is a social good. By disengaging itself from God's creative purposes, sexual orientation and gender identity as categories of selfhood and personhood are inherently secular. 
If we maintain that bearing the image of God is what distinguishes humans from animals, we see that sexual orientation and gender identity create fictional identities that rob people of their true one, male and female image bearers. Even, indeed especially, if you are someone who experiences unwanted homosexual desires or a, or a wrenching clash between your biological sex and the personal feelings about manhood and womanhood represented, sexual orientation and gender identity as categories of ontological personhood are dishonest, cruel, and defeating. Unwanted homosexual desires and gender confusion come from the fall of man, from Satan's intrusions. Homosexual desires and gender dysphoria are outworkings of original sin. And fallen desires are simply not who you are. Now, for those of, of us in this room who have had or do have unwanted homosexual desires or gender dysphoria and are Christians, we know that Christ's forgiveness renders us citizens of a new and different country. We know that experiencing unwanted homosexual desires is one of the ways that original sin distorts us. We know that it's unchosen. We know that when we have acted on sexual sin, it quickly escalates into an intractable, indwelling sin. And we know what God says to do with sin. Repent and flee from it, even if it is unchosen, and even if it has been our companion from our earliest memory. And the only reason that we know this is because the Bible tells us so. Our Lord Jesus tells us that only two things will survive to the new Jerusalem, our souls and his word. So we are confident in trusting that God knows our nature better than we do. Now let's step, step back for a moment and consider whether this is relevant. I mean, after all, since not everyone is a Christian, why should non-Christians be burdened with these biblical rules? I mean, isn't that an imposition of one person's religion upon another? Isn't God's wisdom discriminatory? Well, you see, I just don't believe that it is, because bearing the image of God is a universal gift that God bestows to all of humanity, to people who define themselves as Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, gay, trans, bi, etc. Image bearing as men and women is what distinguishes human beings from other higher mammals. Calling people to live as image bearers of a holy God is a universal good, regardless of their faith tradition or sexual or gender affiliations. Now let's step back for a moment and ask if it's fair. I mean, after all, I didn't sin in the garden. Neither did I ask Adam to be my federal head and represent me there. I mean, is it fair that the human nature that we all have inherited is corrupt? Is it fair that God is calling me to bear responsibility for this corruption? Is it fair that I am seen as both guilty and corrupt apart from the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus? Or in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, in an answer to the question 10, is it fair that, quote, God is terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sin? Inheriting the human nature that we all have after Adam can be compared to owning 
a beautiful house with a large garden. Let's say you are the owner of this grand house and enchanting garden, but for all the years that you live there, you just let the garden do what it wants. You never prune back the rose bushes. That would discriminate against them. You never labor and sweat and sacrifice and fight and beat back the weeds and drive out the pests. And after a decade of this, your garden is in total ruins and has been taken over by weeds and pests and roots and corruption. And maybe the roots have grown so deep and so strong that it is truly past the point of all help. Well, let's say that you're pretty mad about this. I mean, you paid a, a good penny, you know, for this garden. And you complain to a master gardener, expressing your hurt and your anger that your property is in shambles when you didn't do anything but let your garden flourish according to its natural inclination. Well, the master gardener will remind you that gardens, uh, that gardens come with weeds and responsibilities as part of the package. Because weeds and pests are part of the package, to deny your responsibility to do battle with them is to deny the true nature of the garden. By rejecting the true nature of the garden, you did something very wrong. You allowed it to go its own way. Now, the same is true for ourselves. In order to flourish, we need to know our sin nature, and we need to drive a fresh nail into it daily, maybe hourly. We need to know that sin is engraved with a diamond pen upon our hearts, says Jeremiah 17.1. And if we do not start there, we will never flourish. And we need to know that the truth of a substance is found not in appearance or feelings, but in what is built into the nature of a thing, of what is its spiritual core. Truth matters. It can be measured and known. As Pastor Ken Smith said to me 17 years ago, when I lived and worked as a lesbian activist, Rosaria, what is true determines what is valuable, desirable, and ethical. Sexual orientation and gender identity as categories of personhood and civil rights stymies freedom of conscience. These categories themselves are stumbling blocks. They are too much for the soul to bear, especially the soul of one who experiences unwanted homosexual desires and longings or gender dysphoric feelings. It creates an excuse clause for obedience to Christ's clear commands and denies that God gives his people no command without also giving the grace to perform it. It fails to portray God's power to redeem, transform, lay down his life, and live again in and through his people. God's, God's people are a Galatians 2.20 people, having been crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We stand only in the risen Christ. This is as true and universal for those of us who struggle with same-sex desires as it is for those of us who struggle with other distortions of the fall and other indwelling sin patterns. Prior to the Supreme Court's historic decision, many people, including some evangelical Christians, 
believed that the only thing that would change if the court overturned state bans on same-sex marriage was that now same-sex couples could get married. That seemed fair to most Americans. The American public was assured that same-sex marriage would allow for peaceful coexistence, upholding of the melting pot of diversity. We were promised that the institution of marriage in no way depended upon heterosexual exclusivity, even though heterosexual exclusivity is the defining feature of marriage throughout all time and in all civilizations. But now, even those who were slow to face the facts behold a simple truth. You see, simple simp you see certain categories of reality simply depend upon exclusivity to exist. That's true with some chemical co compounds. It's true with some philosophical ideas. Certain categories of reality depend upon exclusivity to exist. And biblical marriage just so happens to be one of those. Exclusivity is not a popular idea. And yet belief in a theistic God, one who created and intervenes into the lives of his people, controlling all events for our good and his glory, one who is self-existent, self-revealing, and personal, depends upon exclusivity. So does the gospel. And after Obergefell, we learned that so does biblical marriage. Genesis 2:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we see categories of male and female, husband and wife, are not social constructs. They are exclusive and separate categories of God's design. We see that God has placed moral and ethical constraints to being born male or female. Let me tell you that when I go and speak on college campuses today, what I just said is the most radical thing, especially a secular college campus, that being born male or female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities and constraints. These constraints cannot be washed away by good intentions, strong and abiding and unchosen feelings, or the wisdom of five unelected Supreme Court justices. In addition, the Lord Jesus ex expresses the exclusivity of the gospel as one of its signature comforts. John 14, 1 through 6, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Our Lord's words are clear. He has exclusive rights to the redemption of his people. Exclusivity is at the heart of the gospel and is the cornerstone of its offense. Biblical marriage exists in, hetero, in heterosexual exclusivity because God has authored both biblical law and natural law, and both for our own good. And if the religious liberty fallout that we have seen since the Obergefell uh, decision portends anything, and we all know 
that the other shoe has simply not dropped yet, then you see that when a culture redefines marriage, it redefines everything that depends upon the family as an institution, including the people who inhabit it. Well, why is exclusivity necessary? We just naturally rub against that, find that offensive. Well, it's very simple. Redemption exists in Christ's exclusivity because of this, the love of God. Ephesians 3.19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Why do the biblical categories of maleness and femaleness and redemptive fidelity rest in exclusivity? Because as Puritan Vincent Elsop put it, quote, the love of Christ was a conquering, triumphant love. It bore down whatever stood in its way. It grappled with the displeasure of God, with the malice of devils, the fury of unreasonable men, and with the unkindness of his friends. Christ has exclusive rights to his people because he paid for us in blood. The category of sexual orientation asks the wrong questions about the nature of humanity and produces the wrong conclusions about what it means to be human. You see, the Bible does not ask you to build an identity out of how you feel, ever. And please do not think that the category of sexual orientation is a safe fit for people who identify as heterosexual. As Michael Hannett puts it in a provocatively titled essay, quote, against heterosexuality, the idea of sexual orientation is artificial and inhibits Christian witness, unquote. Michael Hannon writes this, quote, the most pernicious aspect of the orientation identity system is that it tends to exempt heterosexuality from moral evaluation. If homosexuality binds us to sin, heterosexuality blinds us to sin. Well, let me say, this is actually not an easy conversation for me. You see, we live in the world that I helped create. The blood is on my hands. I spent 10 years of my life in serially monogamous lesbian relationships and working to advance LGBT rights. But from the age of 22 until 28, I dated men. While I was publicly dating men, I was privately falling in love with women. And when I finally met my first lesbian lover, life came together for me and made perfect sense. I came to Christ in 1999. I broke up with my lesbian partner because I was convicted of my sin, but my heart was a mess. I never called my partner my wife because my queer and postmodernist allegiance convinced me to reject all things, quote, heteronormative, including the language, husband and wife, that undergirded it. I and others of my queer generation rejected the idea that we were born this way. That was too potentially pathological. Instead, I believed that my lesbian sexuality was a cleaner and a more moral sexual choice. Conversion to Christ did not initially change my sexual attraction for women. 
what conversion did change immediately was my heart and my mind. Indeed, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. My mind was on fire for the Bible, and I could not read enough of it or enough about it. I also developed deep and resonating friendships with both men and women in my church. Through the means of God's grace, I learned to repent of sin in a holistic way. I began to see that my sexual desires for women were not a reflection of who I was, but rather a distortion of it through original sin, a distortion that I had allowed to become an indwelling sin over the years. One quotation from John Owen really stood out to me during those years. The Puritan John Owen said this, quote, you cannot mortify a specific lust that is troubling you unless you are seeking to obey the Lord from the heart in all areas. I realized that focusing on one sin at the exclusion of the others was not what God was calling me to do. And because lesbianism was both my sexuality and my identity, it was very painful for me to even see it as a sin at first. I realized through John Owen that Christ bled as much for the sin of my pride and lying as he did for my sexual lust. Soon, union with Christ became an emerging component of my personal identity, one that competed with my sexual identity. And then I noticed it. Sexual attraction to anyone or anything forbidden by God is degrading. It degrades a human being. Psalm 73:22 expressed what it was like for me to wake up to my sexual sin. When the veil of deception lifts, suddenly you behold what you could not see before. Quote, the Bible says this, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. A beast. I was a beast. At this time, I lived in two worlds, my church world and my work world. In my work world, I was a newly tenured professor of English and queer theory at Syracuse University. I was surrounded by lesbian couples, other professors and professional colleagues and neighbors who had had decade-long monogamous gay relationships. These were dear old friends with whom I had shared vacations and holidays and traditions. We called ourselves family, and we acted like one. I knew them and their households and their children well. I loved them, and I couldn't imagine life without them. I thought that they would, the thought, the mere thought, that they would have to break up with each other and repent of sin to have Christ's forgiveness and saving grace was almost too much for me. It seemed so unfair. They would have to lose everything. The safety and stability of their household seemed to prove that some people are just better off if left to what the Bible calls sin. I cried out to God to help me understand how this could be, how I could see my own sin, both the sin of my sexuality and the identity that was rooted in it, as something that degraded me and made me a beast, but at the same time, see others in my lesbian community and their happy and stable households 
in a completely different way. I asked God to let me come face to face with his word on this. This prayer brought me to the Gospels and the disciples and the holy love that they had for the Lord Jesus and for each other. This was real love. This love didn't cause others to sin. This love so cherished its beloved that you sacrifice all unholy desires that could separate your lover from the God who made her. I started to understand that my lesbian friends could actually have this kind of love too. And I suddenly realized that my dearest friends would actually love each other more and better if they were sisters in Christ instead of lovers. This made me call out to God to make me a godly woman. Over time, the desire to be a godly woman grew into another desire, the desire to be a godly wife. Now, let me say right here that I don't believe that this is a gospel requirement. I believe that there is a vital and powerful role for singles in the church, and that singleness in Christ is not selfishness or second-class gospel citizenship, but instead is, as Paul says, a freeing up of your hands to pour yourself full tilt into ministry. Or if I can quote my 13-year-old son who said to me recently, Mom, why is it that all the cool people in our church are single? because they have the time to take care of you. <laughs> Nevertheless, I felt called, if God willed, to ask God to make me a godly wife, to work in me such that I could be a helper in all aspects of life to a godly man. This season of my life was messy and filled with terror. I had a failed engagement with someone in my church, and this led and this fed into some of my old hurt and distrust of men. And then I met my husband, Kent Butterfield, and we have been joyfully married for almost 15 years. Now recently, I should tell you that I've been told by gay rights activists and some who identify as gay Christians that I was never really a lesbian, and therefore I should stop calling myself a former lesbian to them, I was, and still am, just a confused bisexual. I don't know how many pastor's wives get, you know, just labeled in these ways. <laughs> Maybe that should be the next book, right? <laughs> now, these criticisms are really important because they show that the big questions in life always come down to worldview. You see, from one worldview, I'm a confused bisexual, from the other worldview, former lesbian. Now, in a Christian worldview, this is kind of hard to hear, so sit, sit tight here, folks. If I was lesbian enough to be cast into hell, had my homosexual sexual sin remained unrepented of, if I was fornicator enough to be cast into hell, had my heterosexual sexual sin remained unrepented of, then I was lesbian and fornicator enough to share with you what it means to submit unholy sexual desires to Christ, to by grace alone be obedient to Christ, pleading with him to save me from myself, 
crying out to him for the redemption of both body and soul, and by his grace alone, growing in Christ-likeness, as God conforms me in the image of his Son, doing a work that no human can do. You see, God never asked me if I was a lesbian. And God never asks you to define yourself by the alphabet soup of our current culture's expressions of sexuality. God asks all of us how sexuality can reflect God's created order. And there are two ways that our sexuality can reflect God's created order. Fidelity in biblical marriage and chastity in singleness. Both are vital reflections of God's created order. You see, if I was lesbian enough to be cast into hell, had the sin of my lesbian identity and allegiances to my lesbian community remained unrepented of, I was lesbian enough to recount to you now what it was like to immigrate from the LGBT community and become a citizen of a new nation, one where union with Christ and his church became my ruling identity and one whose exclusivity allows for no dual citizenship. If I was proud feminist enough to find my identity either in my singleness or in my desire to take up any sexual expression that piqued my fancy, then I need to be repentful follower of Christ, one who reflects that any worldly identity unrepented of would still put me outside of God's citizenship, a citizenship that I did not earn was, but was granted by God through his forgiveness of me. Freud believed, you know, that all people are really bisexual, and it's only social inhibition that would suggest that you would be anything else. Because a secular worldview denies God as creator and redeemer of humanity, the central question to culture is this, how do you feel? What pleases you most? In the words of our culture, sexual orientation and gender identity are social con constructs. But the questions a culture ask, asks reveals a great deal about its reigning idols. Under a biblical worldview, the sin that I committed needed to re be repented of and forgiven by God in order for me to be part of the kingdom of God. Under a biblical worldview, the most important question is, how can my sexuality glorify God? Biblical marriage, if God provides a spouse, or faithful and chaste singleness? Under the doctrines of scripture, I learned that my homosexual desires were actually an indwelling sin and not a category of personhood. And by God's grace alone, he showed me that I needed Christ, not any more girlfriend lovers. Words matter. Worldview matters. Well, there is no place in scripture where we see that God loves and bestows upon you the blessings of saving faith without rigorous change to and within the person crying out to God for salvation. That change is exacted at the cross of Christ and the redemption that flows from it, and not from behavior modification or moral improvement 
on some outside matters. This is a contested issue. Advocates of gay-affirming theology tell us that it is the Bible and its teachings that must change to make room for the new scientific wisdom of sexual orientation. And I'm just gonna tell you something. Sometimes it's hard to know what a gay-affirming book is when you first pick it up. Here's a little clue. If the author says that he or she has a high regard for scripture, but does not say scripture is inerrant, um, scripture is inspired, scripture is true, if it says high authority, high ideal, that is likely a gay-affirming book. You know, people also may have a high, author high ideal um, for Shakespeare. It doesn't mean they know how to read it. That change is exacted at the cross of Christ and the redemption that flows from it and not from behavior modification. Advocates of gay-affirming theology tell us it is the Bible and its teachings that must change to make room for the new scientific wisdom of sexual orientation. But sexual orientation as a category of personhood is pseudoscience. It's bunk. It is not an ontological category of personhood. We are called to repent of unchosen and unasked for sinful desires. So you don't get a loophole because you didn't ask for it. Colossians 3.5 calls the believer to change, not just outward behavior, but the evil desires that fuel it. The Bible teaches, and the 16th century Christian writer Sarah Hawks records, that sin insinuates itself into our motives, designs, objects, thoughts, prayers, and every action, sleeping and waking. Genesis 6.5, Mark 7.20-23 bring to light that the fall of man and the original sin it bequeathed drives corruption deep into the cavernous desires of our hearts. And Ephesians 4.22-24 calls for the transformation of our inner being to conform to Christ's righteousness. At the same time, the Bible compassionately reveals that all true believers feel this inner war. Quote, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Galatians 5.16. But sin no longer defines us. Quote, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus, Paul reminds us in Romans 6.11. Our call is not to despair but to hope in Christ and to drive a fresh nail into our choice sin every day. Because of what Christ did on the cross, the believer is no longer in bondage to sin, although it still knows our names and addresses. While sin is no longer in your nature, Christ has covered you, after all, in a robe of righteousness and has taken our sin upon himself. It still resides in our patterns of thought word, deed, and must daily and sometimes hourly be battled with. None of us is free from the seductions of our indwelling sin until glory. And this is the crossroad for the Christian who battles with homosexual longings and desires. Are homosexual desires and capacities distortions from the fall or merely diverse expressions of humanity now protected as a civil rights category? Are same-sex sexual unions illicit sin 
against which and with the power of the Holy Spirit we need to wage an irreconcilable war? Or are they my entitled freedom? You see, there is simply no middle ground here because compromise is surrender. So what is union with Christ? If you can't have sexual, you cannot have your identity in your sexuality and your identity in Christ at the same time. What is this union with Christ? Well, simply put, union with Christ means that we have died and we have risen with Christ. It is the single most extraordinary privilege a believer has. At the moment that your heart is regenerated and you are born again, the Holy Spirit forges a spiritual, unbreakable, and irreplaceable and eternal union between the sinner and Christ. This union is better than the one that Adam had in the garden when he walked and talked openly with God prior to the fall. You see, Adam's sin depended on his obedience. That didn't go so well. That wouldn't work so well today either. Our union depends on Christ's obedience and on Christ's being and his character. When we say that all believers are united to Christ by faith, union with Christ is what we are talking about. All believers have union with Christ. But if you've never thought about this before, if you do not exercise your faith, build it up, make it strong, depend upon it, this precious doctrine may remain completely dormant to you. When union with Christ is not enjoyed, the cares of the world sneak up and steal our joy with Christ. Now, if union with Christ means that we have died and risen with our Lord, why have we died? Well, because of sin of sin. And why have we risen? Because of the merits of Christ's blood shed on the cross for me and for you who believe. And it, this gives the believer a supernatural power to no longer be in bondage to sin. That doesn't mean we were lobotomized. It just means we're not slaves any longer. Now, the Bible has three different ways that we have union with Christ. And this is kind of a long story, and I talk about it more in my new book, so I won't go into great detail here. But the three ways are imminent, that's before the foundations of the world, um, historical redemptive, that means that, you know what, folks, we don't measure up. Christ measures up for us. That's the point. We died with Christ. We rise with Christ. And also applicatory. And that's, and that's the one that I think we are more commonly talking about today, where the Holy Spirit impresses upon you and gives you both the comfort um, to uh, beg for repentance, but also the gift for repentance. You can't make yourself repent. You just can't do it. You cannot make yourself repent of a sin. You can't make other people repent of a sin. That is only something that believers can do, and that is God's gift. Union with Christ is the dynamic and supernatural power that God gives his redeemed people, and this union is made manifest in these ways. But you simply cannot have union with Christ if you have made an identity out of anything else, including your sexuality, 
are your gender. And this is why I believe that it is degrading for any Christ-bearer to call himself a gay Christian. I believe that that degrades you, it degrades me. You see, union with Christ demands that Christ has exclusive claims on his redeemed people. Indeed, the title of tonight's talk probably should have had an or instead of an and, sexual identity or union with Christ, because the two forms of self-representation compete for the same thing, your loyalty, your heart, your sense of self, and indeed, your faith. Sexual identity is incompatible with union with Christ. Indeed, you simply cannot have identity in your sexual orientation or your gender identity and Christ because there is no dual citizenship for a Christ follower. A Christ follower has a single mission. She does not bow down to the idol of sexual orientation and gender identity. Idols simply cannot be added and stirred to the melting pot of ideas and made peace with. Idols are demanding of your worship, your time, your attention, your love, and they're predatory. They will do anything to get those things. And idols must be publicly repented of. Like Nehemiah, we must take ownership of our nation's sins and publicly repent of them. We must stand in our union with Christ and against the idea that sexual identity and gender identity encompasses personhood. We must not fear truth, and we must not fear being ambassadors of God's truth. Personal identity is not in the eyes of the beholder. It is in God's hands. And that, my friends, is the very best news of all. And that gets us back to the video that opened and that began this lecture. Here are my three questions, and we'll have a chance to talk about these. Is truth knowable? Is identity subjective? And are feelings more important than facts? You see, your life will bear the answer. And it is my prayer that the Lord is raising up a generation of believers who can answer that interviewer's questions we saw in that video that opened tonight's programs in ways that honor God and give freely the promise of transformation and change only afforded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. So I, um, I will be happy to answer your questions. So I don't know if there are my, oh, there's microphone right there, okay, or you can just be loud. Um, but I, um, I've got those fun lenses, so if I'm looking at you at the reading part, I can't see you. So Uh, going against the predominant worldview, and uh, you told it like it was in such a gentle, loving way. As a pastor, are we approaching an infraction of any law to help people out of their homosexual lifestyle? Do we have to be aware of anything? Huh. You well, know? you know, I, I would say, you know, as I shared in my in my testimony, my very brief testimony there, I was really not converted out of out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. So pastors are going to have to keep doing what you're doing so well. You need to preach the gospel, and you need to let the, the word of God dwell richly in uh, the hearts and the minds of people. I will tell you that I was just last week in Harrisonburg, Virginia, 
speaking at a kind of frou-frou women's conference, the kind where they make you wear a corsage. And I'm going to tell you what I learned. I learned do not wear your corsage and your dominant hand because you keep dropping it in your soup. All right? I learned that. But I also learned something else. Um, the secular media and uh, secularists tell us that they're really not trying to attack our religious liberty. They just want us to do whatever we do privately in our own churches. But you know what? I found out that's not true because I had Channel 3 News videotaping everything I did for our women's conference inside a church building last week. So I would say this is coming to a neighborhood near you. How are you going to preach to people with their placards? What are you going to do? So um, I, yes, I absolutely, this is, uh, we are seeing a tsunami change in culture and I am the last person to complain about it because this is the world that I helped create. And by God's grace, I get to be here with you. Next question. I think the president gets to ask a question. Don't you think? <laughs> Hello. You've referred in your talk three or four times to unwanted same-sex desires. Yeah. And that unwanted same-sex desires are a great burden on the soul. You had nothing to say that I heard about wanted same-sex desires. Could you talk about those? Right, right, right. You know, there's always one in every crowd that catches me on that, Dr. Edgar. There's always one in every crowd. Well, you know, that's, that is a very good point. And sometimes I have people who themselves are wanting their same-sex desires who stand up, and they say it this way. I mean. Dr. Edgar is very polite. He asked it as a philosophical question. I've had people stand up and say, I love my lesbian desires. I love doing what I'm doing. And how dare you say that I'm wrong? And I will tell you what, what I have said in that situation, and maybe it applies to the more philosophical question. I, I have said, well, I don't recall saying that you're wrong. I recall saying you're deceived. You know what deception means? Deception means being captured by an evil will to do its bidding. So it's hard because right now uh, gay rights agendas are just, they are ruthless and tearing down many, many of the things that as Christians we know are, are crucial for the maintenance of civilization, of culture, and of church. But sin is still sin. And what makes some people love their sin, I think, is perfectly captured for us in John 3. It is not just that we are blind. We are not just victims of a kind of moral blindness. We love our moral blindness. We love it. And so I would say it is just a progression. It is just a progression. Unwanted homosexual desires, if they are allowed to become an indwelling sin as they were with me, you love your sin. And that is the nature of sin. Sin will capture you to do its bidding. And that is true for every, you know, every person. A 30-year-old marriage could be destroyed in a 30-second affair. It is that ruthless, and it's that ruthless for everyone. But 
if you don't see it as a sin, that's the first step to losing all bearings. And that's part of my concern with this gay Christian movement. If the gay is sanctifiable, but acting on it is not, that is one of the most illogical axioms I've ever heard in my life as a student of logic. It just makes no sense. If you are sanctified and beautiful and good in your gayness, but you ought not act on it, what does that mean? And you know where that philosophy has taken people is the belief that churches should sanctify non-sexual same-sex unions. Now you know what that means. That means that um, Rose and Jill have a uh, non-sexual same-sex union. And the church has uh, sanctioned that and they regard it as a covenant. What happens if Jill wants to marry Bob? What's the church supposed to do? Which covenant? I mean, if it's all equal, you see, if it's all the same, what's the church to do? You know, I think part of the issue here is that we've lost a real understanding of biblical ontology, that we are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever, and that there is a moral responsibility and ethical frame for being born male or female. And that's news. That's news. And it's and it, for many, many people, what I just said is a scandal. Now, I'm curious about the, can we get to the video? Um, how many, what could have been a better way to answer that guy's questions? I mean, without, like, being a jerk. I mean, you know, you could easily just be a jerk, right? Just like, well, four out of five dentists would say, you know, you're just a short white guy, and we know that. Well, I mean, what? What it what you know? Can you have you thought through that? I mean, how how do how do you answer those questions when the culture poses it to you? Do you do you, anybody have any thoughts on that? Is it fair that I ask you questions? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Did anybody hear that? See, this is something that that our millennial generation can, can, can teach people like me. You know, my I'm 54, and I just want to get to the facts of things. I just want to answer the question and get to bed. You know, it's getting late. Um, but um, what I love so much about your generation is that you really understand that relationships matter a whole lot. I mean, they matter so much. They matter so much to the Lord. If you have your Bibles open, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10? This is, this is one of those passages that um, can lead me to tears sometimes. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. Oh, that's where, that's where I see the... Everybody's got their phones up, and their everybody's face has a little holy glow now. You know, <laughs> that must be the Holy Spirit. All right, let me read. Peter began to say to Jesus, "See, we have left everything and followed you." And Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands." for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You know, there is a promise right here in this section of scripture that when you are sharing the gospel with someone who is going to lose their family and maybe lose their livelihood and lose their bearings and lose their identity, that the church is going to be there a hundredfold. See, this hundredfold isn't referring here to spiritual gifts. It doesn't say, and then you, through union with Christ, will have um, much peace and, and you know, much sanctification. It says that you will be restored a hundredfold, and that is a promise that comes to the church. And so part of, I think, why we can't answer these questions isn't only that we have lost our bearings. We have lost our bearings. We have allowed sexual identity be to become an idol and a civil right, and that is, a, that, is, that is a shame and it is a danger, especially for people who identify under that alphabet soup. But the other problem is that we have forgotten that when we share the gospel, it's supposed to come with a house key. We've forgotten that when we share the gospel and we join a church, we commit our lives to Jesus, we're a member of a family. And families have access to each other and not just, you know, Sunday morning between 10 and 12. Right? I mean, for all of the sin, and I would not deny that there is sin in the LGBT community, you know, I just tell people that the hospitality gifts I hone today, I honed in my queer community. And um, that, that's just true. It was a community of people who were given to hospitality. But the church should outdo that because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We should outshine any successful but worldly community. So I agree. I think, I think it's hard to answer those questions in part because we don't always know the person to whom we're speaking. You know, and that gets to the next point. If that's the case, then maybe we need to take more time to get to know each other. And that's real time. You want to know the best kind of church for people who struggle with unwanted homosexual desires? I'm going to keep hanging on to that phrase. Um, it's one where everybody's repenting of something. You know, where, where nobody claims to be on, you know, not struggling with something and where people are, are forthright in asking for help and care and community. It's the kind of church where nobody is going to die of crushing loneliness. It's the kind of church where singles are not made to feel like they're people who need to be fixed or fixed up. That's the kind of church that we need to be, and I think that will certainly help with how we would answer those questions. All right, are there any other questions? I know our sound guy wants to get home, too. So are there any other questions? Yes. Do you need, do you need the microphone? Uh, I, I can talk to you about it. Okay. Outside. Okay. Uh, so all these years later, would you say that you still struggle with some of those temptations that you've had? You know, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I will say that biblical marriage does just does wonders for a person's, um, I don't know, peace? I mean, obviously having the right marriage. Um, but no, I would not say that I was lobotomized. Um, and so I'm, I'm careful. You know, there are just certain things that I just don't do. 
You know, there are certain kinds of music I just don't listen to. Um, in fact, this is kind of funny. I remember um, one of my homeschool mom friends came up to me last year, two years ago, and said, I got tickets to the Indigo Girls, and you're coming with me. And I said, no, I'm not coming with you. <laughs> you, know? you know why? Because I just can't. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we all struggle with something, right? I wasn't lobotomized. We struggle in God's way. We struggle in the right way. But I will tell you this, that my Christian life is really not the word I wouldn't use, the verb I don't use to describe my Christian life is not struggle. I, I mean, and that's what sort of bothers me. I mean, I'm going to ignore, you know, yes, I have my weaknesses. Yes, I have my foibles. But what I've been allowed to do in Christ is thrive. I, I've been allowed to fly. I've been allowed freedom and liberty. I've been allowed to, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. The the majority of my time in the Lord has been filled with joy and victory and transformation and the power of Christ. And I, I'm absolutely here standing in the risen Christ alone. I do not measure up. You would never want to look at me and say I measure up. It is Christ who measures up for me, and that's the point. There's a question back there. me where yes. you said often the church um, maybe you didn't use the word church but people said you need if you're single you need it fixed yeah fixed and in, in your first book there's a phrase that you uh, sense that you have it says it seemed as though people that I thought were my friends saw me as suddenly more legitimate now that I was going to join the club of the married yeah it's so weird to have people quote me, by the yeah. way. It is yeah. like the Sorry. single most weird experience of Rosaria's life yeah. is when people quote me. Who said that foolish thing? Okay, go ahead. Yes. So speaking from uh, being a single, a lifetime call yeah. to be single, Yeah. how have you thought about and do you think, how do you think your acceptance in the Reformed Presbyterian Church might be different if God would have called you to stay single and have ministry, and how do you think maybe your ministry would be different? Right, right, right. Well, I'm really fortunate to be able to labor alongside of many of my brothers and sisters uh, whom the Lord has called to singleness. Um, I'm not really sure how to answer a question of how I would have been regarded as different or the same, but I do know this. Um, Kent and I have been able to be big advocates for singles in the church. Um, he was single for a very long time. We got married late in life, and, um, and, and we both are, are big advocates for um, a theology of singleness. And when the Supreme Court made their Obergefell decision, my, my brother Christopher Yuan and I wrote a response um, that involved articulating a theology of singleness. So I can't, um, you know, we have to bloom where we're planted, right? Um, and so I am, um, by God's design, I, I am a married woman, and I'm grateful for that, but I don't think that gives me any bigger brownie points in, uh, in Christ's economy. In fact, Paul says that it would be better to be like Paul. We know that Jesus was not married, um, and so we cannot use marriage as a, um, a kind of, you know, I mean, I'm just going to say it in the way that the Catholic Church does, as a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. It just isn't. It's a very beautiful thing. And you know what? Everybody, every human being here 
that's here is somehow dependent upon something that happened in marriage. <laughs> so it is a very good thing. But no, I, what I mean by when I say I don't think that uh, singles need to be fixed or fixed up, I think that that needs to be really articulated in the church. That, um, that I think that people don't understand, especially for those of us who struggle with things, that it can be really um, burdensome to have somebody act as though you need a, a marriage to be whole. You need Jesus to be whole. Okay, you knew. You need the blood of Christ to be whole. And you need a church community that is there for you from cradle to grave. And I'll tell you, that is something I have found in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I have found small churches with pastors who aren't too busy to minister to people like me. And I don't think you can do that in a megachurch. In fact, I, do, I talk to a lot of people who are lonely in a crowd, I think Jesus is the only megachurch pastor possible. And um, so I think, you know, I think that there's much to be said for that. But yes, that's a good point. And, um, and I'm with you, brother. Any other questions? All right, well, thank you very much. Please join me in thanking Rosaria Butterfield for being here with us tonight. <laughs>